my first real experience with Japanese cuisine was in a sushi restaurant that was across the street from my neighborhood. And I actually uh, got to be friends with the guy who was the chef there, and he let me come in and work part-time. And then after hours would teach me how to roll Western-style sushi rolls. Hello and welcome back to My Signature Dish. I'm Ollie Horn. It's a pleasure to have you here as always. This is the podcast where I speak to the most talented home cooks around the world, talk to them about what food means to them, and get them to reveal all about their signature dish. This time my guest is my good friend Bobby Judo. Bobby is originally from Florida in the USA, but has lived in Japan for the last 15 years, where he works as a TV presenter, and his longest running show being his own regular cooking corner on a local television channel. We discuss how he ended up getting this gig, how he manages to create a new recipe each week for his viewers, and what that's taught him about Japanese food. We talk about how he got into cooking, uh, how he worked in four different Japanese restaurants when he first moved to Japan, and the influence on Japanese food on his palate. Plus, while he's talking about his signature dish, he also talks about how he manages to satisfy both the Japanese and American palates of his mixed race daughters. This conversation starts with Bobby talking about his first exposure to worldwide cuisines back in Florida. Enjoy. My mom and her sister, my Aunt Sue, for a little while ran uh, a cooking business. They ran a catering company. And my father's preferred diet, his tastes were kind of very limited. He was a meat and potatoes and fried chicken, steak, pork chops and kind of guy. It's a hefty meal. <laughs> it was it was spread out through the week, but we'd get through that and then we'd repeat it again the next week. Right. So when my mom started cooking with my aunts for this catering company, they were cooking things that at the time, this was early 90s, mid 90s, were more kind of trendy foods. So like little mini quiches, uh, sweet and sour meatballs, uh, platter food or party food or buffet style food that, that had kind of a little bit of a flair to it. And so it was stuff that never showed up on our table at home, but was really interesting. And I think it got me interested in different kinds of cuisines, different styles of cooking, different cultures, foods. And because it wasn't really, because kind of the the menu at our house was tailored to what my father would eat, uh, if I ever wanted to kind of try and experiment with something that wasn't on that list, I'd would ask my mom how to cook it and we'd cook it together or I'd figure out how to cook it myself. And so were you exposed to these foods which your mom was serving to her clients? Did she involve you in that at all? Uh, I think I was too young to be much help, but I, I got to taste it when she was cooking stuff. So I think her catering company was the first time I ever had a quiche. It was the first time I ever had anything uh, Asian inspired. And this is this is a Jewish pair of sisters in South Florida cooking so it's their their versions of Asian flavors and things like that but it was the first time I really kind of got exposed to foods other than kind of this very basic meat and potato kind of diet and then what happened when you eventually left home and you weren't restricted by your dad's palate did you cook at university yeah in college I cooked a lot I think uh, I had a, a group of good friends that we'd get together and we'd always go out to eat and I think we ran the numbers at one point and realized that we were spending like hundreds and hundreds of dollars <laughs> on food a month and we were always yeah. broke and it was like well you know if we each threw in like twenty dollars a week and had dinner together every night we we could you know each pitch in twenty dollars a week and eat for eat for the full week 
And I think it was quickly discovered that my turns always tasted the best. And I feel, I don't remember if this is true or not, or somebody suggested it or if it actually worked out, but I think I ended up paying less and doing more of the cooking. I do, I remember uh, when it was one of my other friend's turns, I have a friend named Emil, who's a Bulgarian-American. I mean, that's a great name for someone that's about to cook something. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he he was his turn and he didn't know what to cook and he asked me for advice and I told him you could make a sautéed shrimp with Old Spice which I don't know are you familiar with Old Spice the deodorant brand uh, yeah I've heard of it yeah I was completely taking the piss it was just a straight up <laughs> joke and I said just make you can make sautéed shrimp with Old Spice and he said what do you mean how does that work and it was my instinct to just kind of keep going until he figured yeah. it out and so I think I spun some BS about how, you know, like spray deodorant is 99% alcohol and then it's flavoring. And when you cook, alcohol cooks <laughs> off. So if you just sprayed the can of deodorant into your frying pan as you were cooking, uh, the alcohol would cook off and it would leave you with the fragrance and the aroma of the old spice. And I, I was 100% convinced that he understood that this was BS. And this was a guy who his sense of humor was so dry and he was so funny, but you could never quite tell what was intentional and what was not. And I think three weeks later, he called up and he was like, this shrimp is terrible. (laughs) And and also, I've started a fire on my gas burner. (laughs) Did you study Japanese at college? I did. I had the JET program on my radar. The JET program is the uh, board of education where they invite native English speakers to come over and work in their schools. And you pair up with the Japanese teacher and you go into the English lessons and you might you know, be a conversational partner or you might you know, be the correct example reading out of the book or you might plan like, English ga- games for uh, elementary school students. And it's quite coveted, isn't it? You have to interview for it and it pays reasonably well for a college grad. It's long running. It's very uh, competitive. There's a lot of people who go up for it. I think there were something like 5,000 people who applied in Florida um, the year that I applied. And they took like 200, 250. And what are the criteria? The official criteria, you have to be a native English speaker or uh, equivalent level of fluency. And you have to have graduated from college with a bachelor's degree. Okay. But obviously, if they're interviewing you, they're looking for something else. Presumably, it's people that are energetic and positive and will give a good impression of the english-speaking world they look for people with uh, good communication skills they look for people who yeah um the the goal is not so much english teaching as it is grassroots internationalization which is what they say in their mission statement and so it's really they want somebody who's going to be a friendly good representative of their home country to get people in whatever rural area or i mean they're they're people who are in the program in urban areas. But I think since it's national, it's nationwide, they really do have one of these in every school across the country. And so for you, is this the first time you'd ever been to Japan? It was the first time I'd ever left the United States. It was it was a, kind of a dream of mine to travel as soon as I was old enough to travel on my own. And then you never went back? Uh, no. Yeah, I, I go back to visit, but I don't see myself moving back in the foreseeable future. So presumably your experience of Japanese food in Japan was somewhat different to the Floridian Japanese cuisine. Yes, very much so. Uh, so my, my first real experience with Japanese cuisine was in a sushi restaurant that was across the street from my neighborhood. And I actually uh, got to be friends with the guy who was the chef there, and he let me come in and work part-time 
And then after hours would teach me how to roll, you know, Western style sushi rolls. He was not a Japanese guy. He was a Vietnamese guy who was probably also dealing drugs out of the trunk of his car. This was a proper sushi restaurant, not a sushi buffet. But he had an all-you-can-eat plan for like $20, and people would come in, and they would eat like $140 worth of menu items for $20. So working there, like it's clear that this guy's losing tons and tons of money. Um, but then he'd go out in the back and like spend an hour talking to some dudes that were really shady looking by the trunk of his car, and then he'd come back in and be like, that was nothing. So it seemed <laughs> Sorry, like he was running a you, different why did you business. Just mention that was nothing if it was nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like he was running a different business. And then I guess the shady dudes um, ran him off the road and he spent a lot of time in the hospital and the restaurant closed down. Wow. That's a story. <laughs> so then I moved to New York uh, after I finished college <laughs> and I worked in a sushi restaurant in New York for about a year. And there, uh, Again, it was, I think there was one was Japanese head chef. It was a proper sushi restaurant. It was a chain, kind of an upscale place. And they had one Japanese chef. I think all of the other sushi chefs were Indonesian. And then everyone who worked in the kitchen was Hispanic. But uh, I spent a lot of time talking to the Japanese chef, practicing my Japanese because I knew I, I wanted to move to Japan in the next year. What is sushi? Because I know that people that think they're smart like to go, um, sushi actually refers to the rice, not the fish. Or actually, sushi doesn't mean raw fish. But sushi can be anything, can't it? It really can, yeah. Um, so sushi rice is rice that's seasoned with uh, vinegar, with some sugar and salt diluted into it. And you heat it up and melt the sugar and the salt into it and then sprinkle that over uh, freshly cooked rice and mix it in in this special way so that you're not crushing the rice and ruining kind of like the glutinous qualities to it. And it's normally a short grain rice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a Japanese short grain rice. And then you top that rice with a piece of something. It could be a piece of raw fish. It could be a piece of cooked fish. It could be a vegetable. It could be processed tofu. It could be egg. It could be anything, really. Um, but so... In Japan, when you eat sushi, what you're usually eating is nigiri sushi, which is hand-pressed. It's Nigiru means to squeeze, so it's squeezed sushi. And again, shaping this little ball of rice for your fish or your vegetable or your neta, your topping to sit on top of, takes just the right amount of pressure. If you push too hard, you're squishing the rice together and ruining the texture and ruining the mouthfeel. You want that ball of rice to be a vehicle to deliver the flavor of what the neta is. Uh, a lot of Japanese cooking is about you know, the original innate flavor of whatever the base ingredients are. And so if your fish is what you're delivering, you really want to be able to taste the fish and experience the fish and not have it overpower the rice. Was there anything on the menu back then that you didn't like, that even though you tried to eat it, you couldn't palate it? No, um, they didn't serve natto. They, they did not serve natto, which is the fermented beans that to this day... I have trouble with it. My kids are, are big into natto and they're trying to get me used to it. And I think they have it for breakfast a couple of times a week and they'll always make me try it. And that exposure therapy is working a little bit. But still, remember, right. I've been here 14 years yeah. and I work with food. I work with food on TV and you can't avoid eating natto in some, some cases. And 14 years and I still have this much of a resistance to it. But back at the sushi restaurant, the thing that most... Americans had trouble with was katsuobushi, 
What's that? Shaved bonito flakes. Oh, is this the stuff that they sprinkle on Okonomiyaki? That yes, yeah, it's shaved, yeah. shaved bonito flakes. And so, whenever somebody ordered something that had shaved bonito flakes, you would have to tell them as the waiter, like, "Have you had this before? Are you familiar with it?" And moneyed New Yorkers will go, "Yes, I know exactly what it is. <laughs> Just bring it out." And then you'd bring out this plate of udon, like this pasta style udon that this restaurant prepared, and they'd have topped it with these shaved fish flakes. And like you said, they're they're super thin shaved, and they're so thin that residual heat from the food makes them move. Yeah. And if you've never seen them before, it looks like there might be something alive, maybe even a lot of people thought they were bugs. Um and would be so turned off that even though we had confirmed that they knew what they were ordering, and that's what it was. They would send it back. And so you struck up a friendship with this Japanese chef. You yeah. persuaded yourself that your Japanese was good enough to make the move. Yep. You moved to Japan. Mm-hmm. You get posted somewhere rural. I got posted in Saga Prefecture, which is in between Fukuoka and Nagasaki. Um, and yeah, South of Japan. South, southwest Japan and a very rural place. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like geographically, it's closer to... Seoul than it is Tokyo, isn't it? Yeah. I think I was the only non-Asian foreigner living in the town that I lived in. And it was really? a town of, so you... town of maybe 10,000 people. So you were the talk of the town? Yeah, I stood out. Very much so. And presumably, I mean, I've never been to the particular town that you lived in. At least I don't think I have. Presumably there's, there's not a McDonald's there. Uh, no, I think the nearest McDonald's was like a 40, 50 minute bicycle ride. And did you make that trip? Every once in a while. Yeah. Every once in a while I did. But, uh, was basically my question is, was there much American food available to you or was it thrown in at the deep end? No, it was, it was really thrown into the deep end. And, um, that was kind of where I started as a home cook in earnest. I'd always cooked. I'd always, uh, kind of made my own food but when i really got serious about home cooking was when i started living in japan and anything that i would want to eat that that would be kind of like a reminder of home or anything that i wanted to eat that was not japanese food uh i would try to make for myself and in trying to make it for myself and then making it for friends and then making it for uh my then girlfriend future wife it was it became such a big deal that here I was this representative of a foreign culture cooking for people that it wasn't just I made some fried chicken or it wasn't just oh I I scrambled some eggs it was I am here as an ambassador on behalf of my country (laughs) this is the food of my country kind of thing that I began to get very serious about perfecting a dish or perfecting the plating making it look as good as as I wanted it to look so while in Saga, were you cooking predominantly Western food to show off to your then girlfriend, or were you attempting Japanese food? No, I was cooking a mixture of things. Um, so I, I, in my own home cooking, I cook a lot of uh, Mexican food, Cuban food. I'd cook Italian food. Um, I'd cook uh, a little bit of Vietnamese, a little bit of Chinese, just the, the things that I like to eat, and was always open to testing out a recipe that I found online from, you know, whatever cuisine. If it was a flavor that I liked, if it was a taste that I liked. I'd try Thai stuff. I'd try Korean stuff. Um, 
try to make some some curries and things like that. So I was trying everything that I possibly could, including Japanese. And you eventually, as well as teaching English, started working in a Japanese restaurant in Japan, right? I worked in four different food service uh, kind of capacities in Japan. I worked a part-time job at a Japanese bakery, baking bread uh, early in the morning. And then I worked at kind of like a, a cafe bar. Uh, and then I worked in the kitchen at a fine dining establishment. And then I got the longest I worked was I worked two and a half years in a yakitori izakaya, a yakitori restaurant, which is uh, mainly chicken, but also meat and other vegetables on skewers that they cook over charcoal and um, kind of pub food. And just going back to that, to those other jobs, how did you get a bakery job with no bakery experience? Uh, a student that I taught, I did an adult English class, and uh, one of the students was uh, the president of a chain of grocery stores and bakeries. And sh and I mentioned that I like to cook and that I'd like to learn more about making bread. And she said, come work at the bakery. That's interesting. I didn't know you did that. And then what were you doing in this fine dining restaurant? Uh, learning to cut vegetables, mostly. Um, they just had me kind of helping in the back in the kitchen. I peeled a lot of garlic. I chopped a lot of onions. I chopped a lot of cabbage. Uh, I think that's where kind of my 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 limited knife skills came in. Uh, I'm not I'm not the best with a knife, but um, there are some things that you know I can I can julienne you know ten heads of cabbage in in nine minutes. <laughs> that's very specific. <laughs> <laughs> faster faster than a minute ahead. <laughs> it's not. I have this image now of you coming coming back from a hard day at work with another two carrier bags <laughs> full of cabbages and your wife going, new new PB today? I'll yeah. do my best, dear. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, no, I think I remember cooking back again when I had come back from Japan after working that job and cooking with my aunt who had that catering business who, like I said, she was a very, very good cook. But uh, she saw me cut up a cabbage and she kind of stopped and she went, how did you do that? Like, how did you yeah. do it and how did you do it so fast? And I was like, well, somebody showed me how to do it. And then I did it every day for months. But it is funny how just the smallest amount of technique can not only radically improve your skills and your speed, right? Yeah. But also make it look like you've got a superpower. So yeah. people that yeah, don't yeah. know how to dice an onion, who watch you dice an onion, you know, the, the recommended way, right? Keeping the roots on the onion, slicing it in half, slicing once across the, the onion, vertically down, and that, you know, yeah, I think you know what I'm talking about. Anyone, I think if you're listening to this podcast, you know how to dice an onion. Uh, and also, if you don't know how to dice an onion, that explanation did not help you <laughs> dice an onion. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? On the vertical? What? Um, but, but to people that don't know how to dice an onion, it looks magical. I think there's this mystique around cooking where people who don't do it have the idea that it's very, very hard or there's some secret talent to it. And there are aspects of, you know, talent or ability, but I think the most the the largest part of it is just learning to do something and practicing over and over and over again. Like my yeah. my father-in-law can't cook to save his life, but he can fillet a fish like crazy, and I can't fillet a fish, and it's because I've yeah. never I haven't done it a hundred times. And he fishes and he does it all the time. It's just I saw a web comic a while back that it was you ever seen those memes where it's like you know what you saw in the recipe and then what you actually made. And it's this <laughs> yeah, beautiful, yeah, yeah. gorgeous cake, and it's this disaster. Yeah, I, saw, I, I always like the ones where it's cartoon characters. Yeah, so the, the picture is always like really cute little dogs or yeah. something, and then the eventual one looks like dogs that have been run over. Yeah, 
I saw this one on Instagram by a guy who does a webcomic. His name is uh, Adam Tots. And he had done like, he'd drawn this picture of this beautiful pumpkin cake and said what the recipe says versus the reality. And the reality was exactly the same. And then it zooms out and it's him standing next to it, looking directly into frame and going, I followed the directions. It wasn't that hard. And I kind of feel like <laughs> <laughs> that's it's kind of my philosophy about cooking. Like you follow the directions and then the more times you do it, you get a sense of where you went wrong. Or you get a feeling for it. And it's not, yeah. it's not that easy as just following the directions, but people think it's impossible when really it's just repetition. And what was your experience working in this yakitori restaurant for all these years? This was, um, it was about two and a half years working there. I was there. I was a customer there for a year before that, and I'm still very good friends with all the people who work there. Um, this was, I would not necessarily recommend the food. <laughs> uh, they is a lot of fried stuff and a lot of like frozen stuff. This this was kind of like a place where you know people would come and bring their elementary school age kids or like they'd stop off after baseball practice or something like that or you know you'd get like a group right. of college kids coming in and so it was it's, frozen french pump, fries that we were cooking it? yeah yeah frozen french fries and uh frozen croquettes and things like that and then the yakitori was good i mean they um they bought and skewered and did all their meat themselves and roasted it all themselves but Again, I mean, on charcoal? It's a, on charcoal, yeah, charcoal grilled. Um, but, you know, the main guy who was the yakitori chef and the owner of the restaurant was also getting drunk every night. And so by the, right. like at the end of the night, you would notice that the skewers would be a little overcooked or undercooked. Or <laughs> and, so, and so did you learn anything in this restaurant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I learned uh, a lot about, I guess, the the general concept of flavoring in Japanese cooking. Um, the Japanese sil syllabic alphabet, the hiragana is, I mean, you're familiar with this, but J Japan has a syllabic alphabet and the vowel sounds are a, e, u, e, o, and then the consonants all get attached to that. So the S letters are sa, shi, su, se, so. And that sa, shi, su, se, so in the syllabic alphabet is used as uh, an abbreviation for a Japanese cooking principle. And it's the principle of what the five basic cho medio, the five basic kind of like flavoring ingredients are, what the five basic categories of seasoning are. And that sashi su so is also used as the uh, kind of like guidelines for the order of adding these flavorings in. So just to break them down, it's sa, which is sato, which means sugar. Um, Shi is shio, which is salt. Su is vinegar. And then shoyu, soy sauce, uh, I guess in like kind of a an antiquated way of pronouncing shoyu, they would call it seiyu. Might be more of a, a Chinese pronunciation. And then the yeah. so is the so from miso. So if you're cooking, they say for the best flavors, to kind of develop your flavors the best, you want to start with sugar then salt, then vinegar, then shoyu, and then finish with miso. People who it's interesting um, I see shoyu as salt. Like if I'm thinking, right, I need this dish to be salty. I'm thinking, how do I do that? Do I add salt? Do I add a stock cube? Or do I right. add soy sauce? Well, I think uh, the Japanese philosophy might be that there's more umami in shoyu. Right. So, you I just, mean, you just yeah. you just did a sentence in English which was fifty percent Japanese words. <laughs> <laughs> I had this problem when I was. 
when I was in Japanese in Japan for like my second or third year, just assuming that everybody knew like the the words that the foreign people here would use in their daily conversations. But right. yeah, I mean, umami people listening to this podcast will definitely know, right? Yeah. So instead of just having the saltiness in salt, um, shoyu, soy sauce, has this added umami, which comes from kind of like the fermenting of the soybeans. And so are these five principles, is that what's used, say, say when this izakaya is developing a recipe? Is that, do they make sure that all five boxes are checked? Or is this more to do with recipe development? I mean, it's difficult uh, to see how this applies to, to frying French fries, but, but I'm sure they did other things. Yeah, they did. They did uh, sautés and, and kind of uh, nabe dishes, like hot pot yeah. dishes as well. And so yeah. it's, not, it's not that you have to hit all five categories. It's not that you have to have all of those five flavors and everything. It's just that when you're cooking and when you're developing a flavor, that's the traditional uh, approved order for putting them in. And I think... And like most people who cook miso soup outside of Japan, do you know you're not supposed to actually cook the miso? No. So when you cook miso soup, you're supposed to have your dashi, add in your ingredients, make sure your ingredients are cooked, then turn the heat off and dissolve your miso into the hot soup and then serve it. You're you're not supposed to keep the heat on and keep boiling while you cook miso, which is... One of the reasons that, you know, miso is the last in the ordering here. Interesting, because the heat changes the flavor profile. Presumably. Yeah. Okay. So, all of this restaurant experience you eventually capitalized on because it eventually became your day job to develop recipes. Yeah. Um, the restaurant experience was a big part of that. Also, uh, I started a, a Japanese language food blog and, and YouTube channel. And this was in large part to kind of help myself study Japanese, but also I kind of had the idea that I, I'd want to try to work in the entertainment industry here. And so I thought if I started building a portfolio of videos of myself speaking Japanese or, you know, somewhere where my recipes were compiled in Japanese, that when I went to a TV station or a production company or a talent agency, I could say, you know, this is my portfolio. This is you know my cooking ability. This is my Japanese ability. Okay, so you built up this portfolio of cooking videos of you speaking what we now understand to be fairly fluent Japanese. And then how did that turn into you having your own TV cooking show? Well, I joined a talent agency and uh, kind of kept pushing them. They were mainly a model modeling agency. They booked models for fashion shows and commercials and things like that. But I kind of kept pushing them and saying, I do this other stuff. I'd like to be more active on TV. Uh, I'd love to have a cooking column in a magazine. And they managed to get me a cooking column that circulated in Southwest Japan in a magazine called Kyushu Walker. And they were looking for something interesting to do. And what they did was they got children's cooking toys. Okay. And every month they would send me a different children's cooking toy, like, you know, an easy bake oven or a, a, a donut maker for kids or an ice cream maker for kids. And they but said... Like function, functional toys, though. Functional toys. Yeah. Yeah. You know what an easy bake oven is? No. It's it's a my first oven kind of thing. It's they send you this little this little oven that you could plug into the outlet and use and maybe a couple sets of, you know, mixes that you put together and make a little mini cake and sprinkle some stuff on it. Oh, They're nice. toys for kids, but they actually cook and produce food. So they would send me like a little donut maker or a little 
takoyaki maker, little octopus balls, and they would say, see what you can do to produce kind of a restaurant quality dish or that's interesting. An adult level product with these children's toys. And so I did and that so you, for, you'd take pictures, for like a year. You? Yeah, yeah. I would cook something and take pictures and send them in and uh, would publish the recipe along with a picture of the toy and a picture of myself and did that for about a year. And it listed my city of residence and the, the TV station from the city of residence saw it, saw that I was local looked up my YouTube channel and said, could you come on as a guest and do like a week of live cooking segments? And that was the first time I got on TV cooking. And from there... So that wasn't through your agency then? So, so that, that was completely independently found? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't anything that the agency pushed for or sold. Um, it was they, they came across something else I had been doing and approached me. So I started just a week of cooking and they were happy with the result. They liked the recipes. They liked the food. They liked my presence on TV. And uh, they started using me as a reporter. And after a little while, I pitched them on the idea of doing this segment where I would go visit kind of a local farm or a local factory and see what they produced and take my cooking gear with me and then cook something on the spot using whatever the ingredient we were checking out that week. Uh, by the way, don't worry, guys. I've got all my own equipment. If I've got a donut maker. I've got a little <laughs> oven. Uh. <laughs> yeah, so I, I did that. Uh, I pitched that and they picked it up and I've been doing that for 10 years. And so every single week for the last 10 years, you have created a recipe from scratch. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I have times that I create a recipe entirely from scratch. I have times when whatever the ingredient that we're using the week, that week is something that I'm very familiar with and have have a bunch of recipes that I could just kind of pull out and use. There are times when I look through cookbooks, I look online. People ask me how I develop the recipes. And what I usually do is I'll do an image search for the main ingredient, whether it's an onion or a potato or a tomato or an eggplant or something like that. And I'll type in eggplant recipes and do an image search. And I'll go through and look through all the images. And when I see something that I go, oh, that, that looks good, I'll eyeball it and then try to make something in my kitchen based on whatever I think that was in the picture. Because I guess that's more important for TV, isn't it? It doesn't actually matter how it tastes. What's important is how the final dish looks. Yeah, I mean... If you're not eating it, then it's all it's all visual. But for the segment, I do have to feed people. And I run right. into problems with this because sometimes the food is amazing, but it's that cultural shock in reverse in that it's I'm out in rural Japan and cooking for, you know, a farmer who might be 80 years old. Sometimes they've never heard of olive oil. Right. Okay. And there's this big disconnect between kind of like, you can find all kinds of cuisine in the metropolitan areas in Japan these days. And a younger Japanese person has eaten all kinds of food and has a, a very global palate, I think. But the older generations, when you get out further into rural areas, they might have never eaten anything but Japanese food their entire lives. And so a lot of times there's something that I know in my heart of hearts is objectively amazing, but it's so foreign to them that they kind of don't know how to describe it or react. But I think in all, in all the, the time that I've been doing this show, I've only ever cooked something that I ate and went like, that was bad. Like <laughs> once, once. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about what you cook at home now, because you've got two young girls. Yeah. 
who are mixed race. So presumably you're hoping to to raise them in a way that can appreciate the delicacies of sushi and the strong flavors of natto, while on the other hand also enthusing about hamburgers. Yeah, we are very multicultural with what we cook. They enjoy a lot of different flavors. Um, it's interesting because I've got twins and they're fraternal twins. And one of them, the the foreigner genes, the non-Japanese genes are a little bit stronger. One of them, my really genes. So? Yeah, Louie. My daughter Louie, in her yeah. appearance, she looks a little bit more Western. and And in her tastes as well. So... Do you really think this is true? Do you, I mean, in your heart of hearts, do you really think there's some genetics where, where she's got a little bit more of your genetics and that's changed how she likes the food? I do. Are you, and really, I, are you I think this strong it, on nature versus nurture? I see it in so many different aspects. I mean, you see it in their pronunciation. Louis' spoken Japanese sounds a little bit more foreign and Ami's spoken English sounds a little bit more Japanese. And the things that they like to eat. I mean, they both like to eat the same things, but Ami will will eat half of her French fries and leave the plate untouched, and Louis will eat all of her French fries and then eat all of Ami's. And Louis loves fried food more. She loves meat more. Ami is more willing to try fish and likes to eat vegetables just as they are. And I don't know if it's a, a Japanese or an American thing, but I know it's definitely she has more of of her mom in her, and Louis has more of me in her. I'm honestly astonished. Like, I, I, I mean, look, this is obviously not scientific, right? Because it's only a right, case study right. of two, and it might just be coincidence that the one which looks a bit more Western has a slightly more Western palate. But it seems that you're coming down pretty hard on the nature as opposed to nurture explanation for why our tastes are what they are well it's not 100 percent. i mean my daughter louis who's more like me loves not though i mean she eats all the japanese stuff that i wouldn't have liked when i was a kid so there's definitely you know you have what you're exposed to and you get used to it and you develop a, a taste for it but but i mean you've got to remember that I'm seeing this not only in terms of food, I'm seeing it in every aspect of their personalities. Yeah. So which is, so is she the one that has the gun then? Yeah, yeah. What kind of things do you cook for them every day? Breakfast, there's usually some kind of eggs. Uh, kind of an American-style breakfast. You know, we'll do pancakes or we'll do French toast with some sort of egg and then some sort of meat and then vegetables. Um, Sounds like the kind of thing a dad would like. Yeah, yeah, very much so. But then they'll have natto and rice for breakfast other mornings, and I'll do like tamagoyaki and miso soup on the side. Tamagoyaki is that Japanese rolled omelet that you can yeah. put a little bit of cheese or a little bit of spinach or something inside there. Uh, but it's flavored with uh, dashi, with fish stock. Um, but all kinds of stuff. We do hamburgers and french fries. I do a, kind of like a Japanese preparation on the french fries where I soak them in water and then rinse them a bunch of times to get all the extra starches out to get what they call the aku the 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 badness you know kind of like the scum out of the the starchiness out of the potatoes and then recently i found that if you put them in um a net dryer i don't know if you've ever seen japanese people who are drying fruit or drying vegetables or drying fish yeah. they sell these dryers that you can they're 
layers of nets that you can put stuff in and then hang them outside in the sun. So I found that if you cut your french fries and then leave them outside in the sun for a little while before you fry them, they're great. But my wife and I like to eat all kinds of, of different food. We like a lot of Southeast Asian cuisine. We like Indian. Um, and we like a lot of spice, like a lot of like if we were eating Mexican, we're putting in chili peppers. If we're eating Chinese, we're putting in kind of like that togarashi powder, that red chili powder. Uh, and we like spicy stuff so much that, you know, the girls are still at an age where they can't appreciate spice. So one of the things that I, I always try to do is try to prepare kind of like two versions of each dish. So if I'm cooking right. like a mabo dofu, which is a, a Chinese dish that's very, very popular in Japan, I've got to make my my favorite way, which has got a lot of spice and a lot of kick to it, and then try to make one that has absolutely no spice. And kind of just separate the pans out as we go. That's so. interesting. Yeah. So, the marble tofu is uh, it's a Szechuan dish, isn't it? Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, my when I think of it, I think of kind of fiery red chili. I think of that kind of very bright red sauce that's come from using chilies. Yeah. I can't really imagine it without chilies. Well, I mean, it's no longer marble tofu. It's a different dish. It's like a variation of it that's that's got. So I don't. Have you ever made mabo dofu? I haven't. Is this your signature dish? Yeah, I'm. I'm very happy with this as my signature dish. Um, yeah, I, so I for think... people that haven't eaten it before, it's basically it's a it's a tofu dish, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's mainly tofu, but I remember it has minced meat in it as well. Or yeah, so it's had minced meat in. So a mabo dish, uh, mabo dofu is one of a couple of different mabo dishes that you can have, and I think the Chinese pronunci pronunciation of it. Might be like ma po, might be a p right. sound, but in Japanese they call it mabo dofu. Because uh, dofu is tofu. Tofu, yeah. But you could also have mabo nasu, which means eggplants, or you can have ma yes. mabo shrimp or something like that. So mabo, I think, refers to kind of the flavorings along with a minced meat, which is usually either ground pork or ground beef or a mixture of ground beef and pork that uh, are cooked in these bean pastes and chili pastes uh flavored with yes. some garlic flavored with some ginger there's usually sesame oil i was gonna say that, that there is a kind of a beany flavor isn't there a, a kind of a, a quasi fermented flavor yeah so i think the flavoring that you get what they they call the ki the kimete like the deciding factor in the flavor of mabodofu comes from two different uh chinese flavoring pastes one is called in Japanese, one's called tobanjan, and one is called tenmenjan. And tobanjan is a spicy chili paste. It's it's made with um, fermented beans as well. But that's the kind of dark red one, isn't it? I mean, there's there's different brands. Some of them are bright red. Some of them are a little bit darker red, kind of almost like a dark red miso. Uh, but that's I think what I'm imagining, yeah. The redder it is, kind of reflects how much chili it's got in it proportionally. Right. And then tenmenjan, which is another one, is it's also kind of seen as like a bean paste, but it's actually like a fermented wheat. It, I think it's it's got like broad bean and soybean in it, but it's like 19 parts wheat to one part bean. Um, right. And it's a much darker, sweet taste. And it's, it's a, like a thick, dark, sweet paste. Kind of like um, similar in taste to like a, a, a hoisin sauce. Yes. Presumably it's got lots of sugar in it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Very sweet. So you'd start with a block of tofu, um, uh, what they call in Japanese a momen tofu, a firm block of tofu. And I've had this dish in the West uh, at kind of like the local Chinese restaurant, and I've never enjoyed it. It's ever. horrible. For, uh, to, to, I, I hate it. absolutely hated tofu before I came to China. I had the exact same I experience. Can't say, I can't say I like it. I think if, if, if you were to make this dish for me, I'd prefer for you to make it with eggplant than tofu. But I do, in, I do eat tofu now. Uh, but eating it in the UK is so different to eating it in Japan. It's, it's, yeah. it's like a different product. Yeah, um, the the taste of the bean is much much richer. Uh, the flavor is better. It's sweeter, and the texture, texture. is better. The texture is yeah. just so good. And there's two kinds. There's broadly speaking two kinds of of tofu you can get. One is kind of a firm block style tofu, and the other is a silky tofu. And you can make this one with both, but I like to make it with the firm tofu, just to kind of give you a little bit of um, of meatiness and texture and something that you can really kind of sink your teeth into something for the sauce to kind of get absorbed into um but so the the firm block of tofu which they call momen tofu in japanese you you want to take and press and drain to get as much of the water out of it as you can so you'll you'll take your tofu and you'll wrap it in a paper towel and kind of squeeze it in your hands very lightly to get as much of the water out as possible then you'll discard that wet paper towel or, or if it's if you're using a like a cheesecloth or something like that wring it out and then rewrap it in something dry and put it on your counter sometimes you can put it on a cooking board that's kind of up on an angle and then set something heavy on top of it and and usually i'll like if i've got like an empty frying pan or an empty bowl or something i'll just put something on top of the tofu so you've got a weight that's pressing the tofu and it's sitting on this slanted board so that any excess water, you know, the paper towel absorbs what it can. But other than that, any excess water will run down and off. So you're drying yeah. out your tofu as much as possible as you're prepping your other ingredients. So how long do you have to squeeze the water out for? Uh, I mean, if you, you give it 15, 20 minutes, you're good. Okay. Uh, you can change out your towel if your towel's getting saturated. But generally, I, I mean, I'll, I'll do an initial dry and then wrap it and then press it and that's usually enough to get as much of the water out as you need to and while i'm doing that i'll get all my other ingredients ready so you've got maybe like I don't know, 150 grams of minced meat in japan they usually sell you know, just pure minced beef by itself is more expensive the more common thing to do is get uh, a mixture of minced beef and minced pork in together yeah which tends to give it kind of more pork fat which kind of gives it a little bit more of kind of like a, you know, a meaty, a little bit gamey, a little bit porky flavor. So you've got your minced meat and you've got like maybe like a little two centimeter long knot of ginger, uh, fresh ginger, and then maybe three or four uh, cloves of garlic. And you want to dice up your garlic, mince up your garlic and mince up your ginger very, very fine, as fine as you can. And get a little bit of uh, cooking oil in a pan and start to saute your garlic and your ginger until it gets really fragrant. Then you want to add in the meat. You add in the meat and when the meat starts to brown, actually they, they say turn white in Japanese. When the meat starts to turn white and releases the fat, you want to take that fat out. Yeah. This is something that I didn't even know was an option when I was cooking in the United States. Um whatever we were making to, yeah, to take fat out of a pan full of meat that you were frying yeah 
So you've got your meat and your garlic and your ginger in the pan cooking. Uh, the meat's browned. And this is when you want to add in your tenmenjan and your tobanjan, your bean pastes. And the bean paste is very, very thick. The tenmenjan is very, very thick. The chili paste is not as thick, but it's still, you want to kind of loosen it up a little bit. So you add a little bit of water and whisk them together. And that'll give you kind of this tenmenjan, tobanjan sauce that you then add to the pan and simmer the meat in the pan. And... Once that started to kind of bubble up a little bit, that's when you want to add your tofu. So you take your drained tofu block and cut it into, I like to cut it into like relatively large cubes. It's like a large, a large bite size. Um, And add them to the pan, turn the heat down to low and cover it and simmer for maybe five to 10 minutes. And then are we done? No. Uh, not quite. You still need to add some sugar. And then once you turn the heat off, uh, you haven't yet added the sesame oil. Sesame oil, I like to add at the end. And so you're not cooking in it, you're drizzling it on as kind of like an added seasoning. And then top with some fresh scallions or chives and Mm -hmm. sesame seeds. Nice. And do you serve this with rice? Uh, yeah, you can... I like to serve it as like a domburi style. Like I, I'll put white rice into a bowl and then spoon it over the top and then oh, top with my... But I think uh, typically they'll serve it just... In a restaurant, they'll serve it in a bowl with a bowl of rice on the side. Yeah. They'll do that Chinese style where they're assuming that, you know, whoever's got that bowl is going to be sharing around with a combination of other different bowls. So, so actually it's no fresh chilies in it? Uh, I don't... I have used fresh chilies, uh, but... In like Asian markets and in the supermarket here in Japan, you can get very good quality uh, tenmenjan and tobanjan. Yeah. Um, um, If you like it spicy, you can add in, when you're adding in your uh, garlic and ginger right in the beginning, you can add in some fresh red chilies. Uh, You can even add in bird's eye chilies if you like. You can add in uh, chili powders or chili pastes. When I first started cooking it, I had a a friend here who was Indian American and he had, we just called it Nirav's grandma's death spice. He had some bag of spice that his grandmother had given him and it was, their family, their family claim to fame was that like the spice had killed his grandfather. (laughs) (laughs) Like his grandfather had eventually died of a stomach ulcer after like years and years and years and years. But uh, but it was family legend <laughs> that the spice had killed his grandfather. And so he'd had like buckets of it that he'd brought over and he gave me a big jar of it. And it was just it was ground dried Indian chilies and really, really spicy. But you'd add in like a little bit of that into the oil when you were first simmering your uh, first sauteing your garlic and your ginger just to get that yeah. uh, capsaicin released into the oil. But um. You can make this without the the tobanjan. You can make it without the spicy one. You could make it with just your your tenmenjan, which is kind of like the hoisin sauce. And presumably this is what you do for your daughters. Yeah. So if I'm making it now, I just got two frying pans going at the same time. I've got all my prepped ingredients and I'm throwing them in. And then one, just I don't put in any spicy stuff. What's interesting to me is not a single element of this dish would have been found on your father's dinner plate. No. How much more work do you need to do before your daughters can eat the authentic spicy version? And what do you imagine is going to happen when they're cooking for their children, if they have any in 20, 30 years time? 
And they go, oh, my dad's such a loser. He can't eat natto. We had the most boring, <laughs> <laughs> the most boring diet growing up. French fries. My God, give me a break. Well, I'm going to try to keep up with them. I mean, they've got me, they've got me on the once or twice a week natto regimen. And I've got to say, I don't hate it as much as I did when I first tried it. Um, but uh, they like to cook. They like to see what we're doing in the kitchen. They like to help out as much as they can. And I can, can see them already starting to want to develop their own recipes. So I'm hoping that when they, they get older, they look back and say, you know, our dad was a good cook. He taught us a lot and that, that we enjoyed cooking together. So I'm hoping not to get left behind. That was Bobby Judo. I hope you enjoyed that chat. Bobby's been my good friend for a long time, and so I've wanted to get him on the podcast. I thought it was too obvious to get him in like episodes one to ten, so I thought I'd save him uh, until I was desperate for a guest, and so thank you, Bobby, for coming on. Bobby's taught me loads about cooking, actually. I remember Bobby watching me cook a dish uh, in my old uh, apartment when I lived in Japan, and uh, he saw that I was using quite an aggressive heat to cook some vegetables. Uh, and he just said, look, you can always you can always add heat if you need to, but you can never take it away. And I often think about Bobby now when I'm intuitively wanting to put the heat on high just because I want to get something cooked quickly. I'll always take it slightly lower than I think, and it always does get better results. And so uh, that little tip from Bobby's kind of stuck with me. If you've enjoyed that chat with Bobby uh, and you want even more content from me and him, then we actually have our own podcast. Uh, it's something that we've done for a bit of fun for the last uh, year or so. The podcast is called Japan by River Cruise. So if you're interested in Japanese culture and the Japanese entertainment industry, Bobby often shares stories about his time working on TV, uh, or you're just looking for a laugh, then please check it out. It's completely different to this, uh, but you might still enjoy it. So it's japanbyrivercruise.com. And if you'd like to join our daft fun, then we're glad to see you over there. Until then, I'll see you this time next month. <laughs>